I wonder whether we could turn to a number of uh, scriptures in the book of Revelation the Revelation of John chapter 2 <clears throat> verse 1 to the angel of the church in Ephesus write and verse uh, 7 he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith to the churches verse 8 and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write and then uh, verse 11 he that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Taratara write. Verse 29, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, verse 6, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, verse 13, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Verse 14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and verse 22, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Revelation 13, verse 9. Revelation 13, verse 9. If any man hath an ear, let him hear. Chapter 22, and verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And he that heareth, let him say, Come. And he that is athirst, let him come. He that will, let him take of the water of life freely. And then in the Gospel of John and chapter 10, <coughs> And verse 3, To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Verse um, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Shall we just bow together in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we want again to ask this morning that you will so presence yourself in our time together that we shall meet with you, Lord, and we shall hear your voice. 
We pray, Lord, that you will help us because so many of these things are things we've heard. But, Lord, we pray that you will get them into our heart so that perhaps for the first time we hear in our spirit what you're saying. Dear Lord, we pray that you will wake us up uh, to the days in which we live. And we may be those, Lord, who are able to take responsibility, able to lead your people, able to uh, serve uh, your purpose and counsel in our own generation. Lord, help us then as we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for the anointing which is ours through the finished work of our Lord Jesus. And we would by faith just take that anointing grace and power for both the speaking and the hearing this morning. Lord, let your will be done in this time. And may the uh, result and consequence be something very precious to yourself. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, I um, want to speak this morning about yet another um, essential uh, and fundamental characteristic in true leadership. Uh, I believe uh, that which God <clears throat> really looks for in service. Now I have no doubt uh, that we are moving um, uh, progressively into the last um, uh, period of uh, world history for however long that lasts. It may last a century for all I know, or two centuries, but, or it may only last a year, uh, it may last a decade. We just don't know. There are those who believe we are the last generation, but I have for a long time suspected that they're going to get us into a very big problem. They base it on the words of the Lord Jesus, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And uh, they link that with the fig tree the, coming into uh, uh, leaf. And if that's the case, and a biblical generation is approximately 40 years, then by 1988 the Lord Jesus has to return, give or take a few years which means that either he might come in the next uh, couple of years, or we may have to say, or shall we say, um, 90, 1992. But our problem is that whereas Grattan Guinness could say this in 1860, 1870, and it was exciting and thrilling and challenging, and even in the earlier part of this century people could say it, and again, uh, it could be said even in the Second World War, for I remember when I first found the Lord being so excited to hear uh, that uh, um, we might well be the last generation. Um, the fact now is that we have very few years left to us, if that uh, theory is correct. Um, and it also means that we can determine exactly what the Lord Jesus said in the same breath. In the same breath that he mentioned, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. He said, no man knoweth the day nor the hour, uh, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man, but the Father only. 
And uh, of course, it's obvious that if it is uh, this generation, then of course um, we're in for trouble because uh, um, we can determine now with every passing month more accurately when our Lord is going to come. Uh, uh, I therefore have for a long time suspected uh, that it is a mistranslation. And um, I remember years ago asking um, a brother who was a great classical Greek uh, scholar at Cambridge if he would look into it. Uh, and he went away and a few days later he came back and he said this, this word translated generation is an incredibly interesting word. It is a, a generic word. In other words, it has a family of meaning. It's not just a, a word that you can only translate with one uh, English idea. Um, it comes from a Greek uh, root meaning to beget. And you could say this begetting uh, shall not pass away. But it means, for instance, this family. That is all those born of the same parentage. Or this clan all those born out of the same patriarch, or this tribe, all those born out of the same progenitors, or uh, this race, all those who have the same source, or it can be this generation, all those born at the same time, the same source of time. For some reason, he said, the 1611 translators translated it this generation, and every uh, successive ge uh, translation has uh, continued uh, with that word. But it is interesting that in the New American Standard Bible for the first time, and the New uh, International Version, you have an alternative in the margin. This race shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And uh, this means, I personally believe that that is the, the real meaning of the words of the Lord. He was referring to the fig tree as the Jewish people. This race of people will not pass away, although you're going to see them judged and dispersed and everything else. This race will not pass away till all these things be uh, fulfilled. Now that means that we have passed into a last era of world history. It could last a century, it could last two centuries, it's very unlikely in my estimation. It could last just a few years, it could last uh, uh, 10 years, 20 years, we don't really know, but we've passed into the last era of world history. In particular, I personally believe, if you will permit me to make this observation, that the United States has been granted a further four years with a Christian president. And I think that, uh, I don't suppose it must be a long, long time when the issues in an election were quite as clear as they were in this last uh, e election. And I think it would have been a judgment of God upon the American people um, if Mr. Reagan had not been elected. Which means that you have a four-year period with a man, whatever his faults might be, who really is uh, uh, a man who fears God and honors God. And in this sense, it seems to me that uh, the whole American people are being given a further opportunity 
a further chance almost, if I could so use the word, um, to uh, seize uh, the grace of God uh, and uh, move more deeply uh, into the way of the Lord. Uh, for these times. And in particular, therefore, why I've said all this is because I believe that leadership is vital, it's strategic in this matter. And although I know not everybody here is a leader, I believe that every one of us wants in some way to serve the Lord. We want to be servants of the Lord. After all, every member of the body of Christ ought to be a servant of the Lord in some capacity. Every one of us ought to be taking responsibility. Therefore, this matter of being a living sacrifice is all important. That is the key to a whole universe spiritually. You cannot enter in that universe of understanding, that universe of intimacy with the Lord, that universe of, uh, of uh, uh, wisdom applied, that universe of power to uh, serve God and to do His will, all stems from being a living sacrifice consistently and in practice. When you know it all up here but you're not a living sacrifice, that whole spiritual universe is closed. It's as if there is a closed heaven over us. It's not open. God never opens his heaven uh, to the egocentric. He will save us because he loves us. But he will never ever bring us into that universe of understanding, that universe of intimacy, that universe of practical union and communion with himself until we become living sacrifices. Now, I want to take up yet another matter which I believe to be, amongst many, but I believe to be a priority, and it is the question of hearing the Lord. Now, that must seem to many of you like kindergarten, hearing the Lord. But in fact, this matter of really hearing the Lord is strategic. It has to be a uh, fundamental and essential characteristic of the servant of the Lord. You see, it is um, and uh, one of the things that c continues to amaze me wherever I go over the world, that so many people have a problem about hearing the Lord. Um, I suppose one is asked more questions about how to know the will of God and how to know what is the will of God for a person, and how to really sort of know what God is saying than any other area. And if I may say so, in particular, men have a problem in this area, much more than women. Women seem, I don't know why, perhaps it's because they've learned to listen to their husbands, I don't know, <laughs> but um, women seem to have a more natural propensity for quite spontaneously hearing. They don't seem to have the same problem that the men folk have in hearing. But men seem to have a colossal problem in this matter. For instance, many servants of the Lord have 
actually told me that they've never heard the Lord in their lives. And these are men who really, in many ways, we would account to be something in the service of God. But they say, well, I don't think I've ever really heard the Lord. <coughs> now, in my estimation, every born-again child of God has heard the Lord. It's, uh, men get tied up because they're waiting to hear some audible voice, I think, or something quite sensational and remarkable. And having a slightly more analytical type of mind, they sort of analyse it, whether there is that the Lord. I mean, it's almost impossible for the Lord to say anything to them because they would tear it into shreds the moment he didn't say, now, could that be my wife saying something? Or could that be brother so-and-so saying something? Or could that be my own voice saying something? Or could it be the world? Or could it be a demon? <laughs> you see, in other words, the moment the Lord says anything, the whole great process starts in the mind of dissecting, analyzing, uh, putting it under the microscope, um, uh, inspecting it as to whether it really is. So, of course, nothing ever gets done. <laughs> While we are analysing the whole thing, um, the moment of opportunity to do the will of God has passed forever. <laughs> and the Lord in his grace has to come back and shout again. <laughs> Only to be um, faced with the same problem. That the more he shouts or speaks, the more dissection takes place, the more analysis takes place. So, I want to say straight away that uh, this question of uh, hearing the Lord is something that is the birthright of every child of God, man or woman. And that every child of God, God would speak to. Now, I said uh, in one place when we're talking about this matter, of course, that God, uh, we have to be very careful of audible voices. Um, and someone got hold of me, I said, well, I think I heard the Lord once audibly. Well, um, I've known other people, I myself have heard the Lord audibly. But we do have to be careful of an audible voice, because very often it can be demonic. So, the audible voice is not the problem. If some of you fellows have got a problem about this, well, I've never heard an actual kind of voice, like a human voice, saying, do this, do that, go here, go there. I've never heard it. The point is, in your spirit, you have a receiver, a spiritual receiver. And God, or the Spirit of God, can transmit, communicate with you. It's not that you actually hear an audible voice. It is that you receive the communication. Now, do you get what I'm trying to say? Um, in, you, you, when, the Lord, when the Lord said in Revelation again and again and again, He that hath an ear, not being sarcastic, even if one of your ears is deaf, and you've only got one functioning ear, that, uh, well, if you've got one ear here, the Lord was not being sarcastic, because earlier, when he was actually physically speaking to people, he said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But when it had passed into the, another realm altogether of life in Christ, 
of being born again by the Spirit. He says, he that hath an ear, in other words, he that has the ability in his spirit to hear what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit hasn't got a mouth. He hasn't got a tongue. He doesn't have those physical things to be able to actually speak like you and me. But the Holy Spirit speaks. He communicates. And in your spirit, you have the spiritual apparatus to receive the communications of God. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So that every child of God in his spirit or her spirit has the ability to hear and to understand what the Lord is saying, what the Spirit is saying at any given moment. This whole matter is of tremendous importance. No wonder the enemy has uh, launched and, uh, and uh, set up such an onslaught over this matter of hearing the, what the Lord is saying. Because you can read the Bible and not hear. You can hear a message given in the power of the Holy Spirit and not hear what the Lord is saying. The Lord can be speaking to a whole company of people and you may completely uh, um, uh, be unaware almost uh, of the fact that the Lord is speaking. Oh, how often in the history of the church God has spoken so clearly. The Spirit has been saying something to the churches in that day and it has just been completely ignored, bypassed, as if he was not saying a single thing. And it explains again and again why whole, why whole movements of the Spirit of God have died or become formalized or become something other than what God originally intended. So this matter is of tremendous importance. You see, you cannot do, it's as simple as this, forgive us if this sounds at Sunday school, but really, we who are leaders and we who are servants of God, we need to hear this. The tragedy is that in the flock, there are those who really hear the Lord, and often the leaders don't hear. In other words, you know, the tail wags the dog. <laughs> Uh, um, eh, 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 all the direction comes from the rear. <laughs> um, because uh, uh, simple saints are more clear as to what the Lord is saying and what he's wanting than the leadership. This is quite ridiculous in one way. It's not that God always wants the leadership to be abundantly clear. It has been a humbling experience for myself to find again and again that after having sought the Lord for a long time about a matter and with other brethren, some simple little old sister who you wouldn't think had anything in her head <laughs> trots up can hardly speak the Queen's English and very nervously says, I wonder if you'd pardon me saying something. I just wonder whether the Lord might be saying this. And then she says, and you know, you think, how come she got that? 
It seems to me that sometimes the Lord keeps us who are leaders very humble indeed by giving light to those who are uh, uh, sort of not the more prominent members of the body. And this brings the whole body into a oneness and a unity. But when every time anything happens, it is from some unknown members of the body that the direction comes and the leaders are forever dull, then I wonder what is happening. Something's wrong somewhere. And uh, we need to attend to this matter. Why? Because you cannot do the will of God if you don't hear the Lord. It's as simple as that. The most important thing in this day and age into which we are moving, this era of world history in which we find ourselves, is to do the will of God. There are a million things we could be panicked into doing in the days that lie ahead. We might go here, we may go there. Even the Lord said, if they tell you he's in the wilderness, don't go there. If they tell you he's on the mountain, don't go there. If they tell you he's in the city, don't go there. You'll know. But if you and I do not know how to hear the Lord, how can we do the will of God? The weaknesses which could have been masked in the day of affluence and prosperity and peace, when it comes to great strife and great problem, will be exposed. So we have time now in which to learn to hear the voice of God. Now, Jesus put it very, very simply here. He said in verse uh, John 10 and verse 3 and 4 <clears throat> about the shepherd, to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. When he hath put forth all his own, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. I come from a part of the world in which there are a lot of sheep. I was brought up in Britain where there are um, millions of sheep and I now live in another part of the world where well, there are sheep everywhere. Sheep and goats all mixed up together. It is an amazing thing, it has never ceased to uh, uh, amaze me that whenever you, that when one went into a field and the sheep were perfectly happy and you talked to them, they shied off. But in our part of the world, some little Bedouin boy comes and says a few words and all the sheep come immediately. If I go and stand there and say a few words, even aping exactly what he is saying, they all run in the opposite direction. He says a few words and they come immediately to him. It is amazing to me. Now, I think some of you may know that sheep are given to disease. 
They are not only very silly creatures, but they are also given to much disease. People have got this sentimental picture of shepherds who love their sheep and sort of stroke each one every night before they tuck them up in bed, um, sort of thing. And the idea is, you know, what a lovely picture of the Lord and his own. But in actual fact, as one shepherd told me once, we had to have a lot to do with the sheep. You see, he said, um, they can develop disease overnight. Foot rot can literally develop within 24 hours. Or sometimes um, there can be an abscess or an ulcer that develops in the skin under the wool. And so the shepherd has to really inspect his sheep at least once every 48 hours. Whereas the goats can be left anything up to two weeks. Goats tend to be disease-free, as well as quite intelligent. And um, they can be left for quite a while, but the sheep not. So the shepherd gets to know the weaknesses of individual sheep. A sheep, he knows if a particular sheep might be given to foot rot. He knows if a particular sheep is tends to be uh, uh, prone to some other kind of illness. He gets to know his sheep by name. He, 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 each sheep means something uh, to him. Um, I remember on one occasion um, when I was in the Sinai there was all these masses of sheep um, from a whole number of flocks waiting to be watered. And um, one uh, Bedouin uh, shepherdess, she had her whole flock there. I would think anything up to a hundred sheep and goats, all black and white, all jostling with each other. I looked at them all and they seemed to me to be exactly the same, the whole hundred. But all of a sudden I saw her look very intently into the midst of this seething mass. She stooped down to the ground, she took up a, a shallow pebble, and she aimed it with the most amazing accuracy at one particular sheep in the center of the whole flock, which jumped up into the air uh, when the stone reached its target, jumped up into the air and fled off into another flock. And to this day, I wonder how in the world she knew that sheep wasn't hers. For to me, it looked precisely like the other 99. But she knew that sheep was not hers. And it didn't have a mark. You know, like in uh, Britain, they, they mark them with the green dye or red dye or a purple dye so that you can tell the different flocks. And the, these sheep were not marked at all. But she knew that that particular one in that large flock was not hers. She knew it from careful, intimate relationship to each member of the flock. Those sheep knew their shepherdess's voice, and she knew them. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now the interesting thing is, especially with many men, they have this exact problem. They say, how do I not know it's the voice of a stranger? Jesus put it very, very succinctly and lucidly. He said, they will not follow a stranger, for they know not the voice of a stranger. Now, Jesus is right and you are wrong. The fact of the matter is this, that in your heart of hearts, if you will let your analytical mind on one side for a moment, you know very well when it's the Lord and very well when it isn't. 
We all know the voice of God. We just have to learn to hear Him and we have to learn to follow Him. But this matter of doing the will of God <clears throat> is a matter of hearing. Nobody can do the will of God who does not hear the voice of God. It is an interesting thing that it says, let him that hath an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, the Holy Spirit may be saying something at a particular time to churches. Uh, what he said to those churches is very important for the whole of the history of the church. <clears throat> but it is also, I think, true to say that at different times the Holy Spirit is saying something to the churches. And we really need to have that kind of listening ear that knows what the Lord is saying to the churches in our day and generation and the way that he is leading us <coughs> in our day and generation. It's very, very important if we are not to be led astray by thieves and robbers. Jesus went on and said, um, the thief comes not but that he may steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and that they might have life more abundant. Now, the problem with not hearing the voice of God and doing the will of God is that the thief comes. And then there is a stealing from the flock. And there is a killing of the flock. And there is a destruction of the flock. Now, the stealing may be spoliation. In other words, oppression comes. Something is lost. The meetings become heavy. We don't move with God in the way that we were moving with God. We're not moving in the life of God in the way we were. Everything becomes systematized, almost heavy, even in the most free meetings. Don't think because we haven't got a liturgy, we don't have a liturgy. And don't think because we have the kind of free meeting where everyone can take part that we haven't got a pattern. My word, some of us, our assemblies and fellowships have a more liturgical pattern and a more rigid pattern than institutional places. And that's why sometimes the Holy Spirit finds it easier to work in some of those places than amongst us. For he finds an open door sometimes in the most institutional areas to burst out in a new way in life. We need to be able to follow the Lord and hear what the Lord is saying. It is extremely important, this whole matter. And so, <clears throat> uh, um, uh, we need, I believe, to, be, uh, to develop that uh, hearing ear when God is saying something to us as a people. When we get dull, when we get uh, spoilt, spoiled, Something is taken away from us. The livingness of our fellowship. The power of the, of the Lord in our midst. The wonders and signs that God did. These things disappear. And the thing, a thief has come. He's stolen. What has happened? The shepherds have deserted the flock. That's what's happened. And a thief 
has come in and spoiled. He has stolen. Killing is individual. It's very sad in our fellowships and assemblies when those who ran well are killed. It's not that they actually die out. It's that they are killed as far as the purpose of God goes for the building up of the body of the Lord Jesus. They are disillusioned, disappointed. Somehow or other, they've been tripped up by the enemy. Uh, the purpose of God for them to be a functioning part in the body of Christ, of the church, has been killed. Why? Because shepherds, the shepherd is not doing his job. Something, need to be, something needed to be explained. Something needed somewhere or other to have been communicated. Perhaps a weakness at the very beginning, sometimes known by the shepherds, has never ever been communicated to that person and they've been unaware <coughs> of it until the enemy blew it up into an area where he was able to kill the purpose of God for them in that particular part of the body. And the destruction is not just, I believe, a personal thing, but is probably a destruction of a whole company. Oh, when we look into the history of God's work, how many assemblies and companies have come together, functioned really in the life and power of God and according to the will of God, and now today they are no more. Destroyed. Thief, the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. What is the purpose of Jesus? It, that they might have life and that they might have life more abundant. In other words, the whole purpose of the chief shepherd is that the flock may be kept in eternal life and overflowing and abounding life. So every under-shepherd has got to be someone who can hear the Lord. The voice of God is not only warning, the voice of God is encouraging. We sometimes think the only time the Lord ever speaks is when he's got something to warn us about. <laughs> but in actual fact, the vast majority of what God has to say is encouraging us, exhorting us, comforting us, strengthening us. We need to hear the voice of God in this way. Now, there, it is a very interesting thing, <clears throat> if I may take this whole matter one step further, that uh, the one necessity in a real servant is to have a hearing ear. Now, let me explain what I mean. We, do no, we no longer live in the days of servants. Uh, but um, uh, when there were uh, servants... At uh, what point was there in a person who was hired as a servant mm. if they couldn't hear what the master or mistress said? They did their own thing, their own way, at their own time. That's not service. Now, you understand what I'm trying to say? I am saying that if you want to be a good servant, the one thing in a servant is hearing. It's no good at harming a deaf servant. If you suddenly say, we've got five people coming to lunch, they can't hear. They're going to go on cleaning the shelf. <laughs> I said, we've got five people coming to lunch. 
They may come to lunch, the silver's still being clean. What's the point of having a servant like that? But the, the work of God is filled with such servants. The Lord is saying such and such is going to happen and they go on cleaning the silver. It's service done in their own time, in their own manner, and according to their own concepts. This is not service. Now it is a very interesting thing that the four Gospels reveal the Lord Jesus in different ways. Matthew reveals him as king. Luke reveals him as man. John reveals him as God. And Mark reveals him as servant. It is very interesting that when John is used by the Spirit of God to interpret the Lord Jesus as God, he doesn't begin with any pedigree. He has no time for pedigrees. He we nowhere find Jesus was born of so-and-so who was begat by so-and-so who was begat by so-and-so who was begat by so-and-so because it, it had no meaning for the Gospel of John. John begins with these words, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then he goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. God the Son. And when we come to Matthew, and uh, Matthew, the Holy Spirit uses Matthew to interpret Jesus as the king, we don't go too far back, we just go back to Abraham. And we discover that Jesus has a whole pedigree that goes back to David, and through David back to Abraham. That's all that's needed, because he's a king. A king has to have a pedigree. Now, of course, you don't know anything about kings on this side of the Atlantic, um, only that you had a Thanksgiving day, the other words, you got rid of them. Uh, but, um, um, uh, I mean, on the other side, we know quite a lot about kings. We would never, ever accept someone to be crowned in Westminster Abbey in the United Kingdom, that is Britain, if they didn't have the right pedigree. A person can't just appear from anywhere and say, I am a member of the royal family. We want their pedigree. It is absolutely essential to have the pedigree. So when Matthew um, reveals Jesus as king, as great David's greater son, as the one who will sit upon the throne of David forever, he gives us the pedigree, and it's very important. Now, when Luke reveals Jesus by the Holy Spirit, he is inspired to interpret Jesus as the Son of Man. He gives a pedigree that goes right back, not only to David, right back to Abraham, but beyond Abraham to Adam. To say, well, he is man. He's not just and only even Jewish, and he's not just and only great David's greater son, and he's not only a son of Abraham, he is a member, as it were, of the human race. Going back to Adam. But when Mark is inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus as the servant of the Lord, there is no pedigree whatsoever. Suddenly, at the beginning of Mark, dramatically, almost sensationally, we find Jesus is there. 
by the Spirit he goes out into the wilderness and meets the uh, meets Satan. It's almost as if it just begins like that with the words of John the Baptist making a way, a highway for the Lord in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And Jesus is almost within a few verses of the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, you have Jesus. No pedigree. Why? Because God is saying, I don't need a pedigree with a servant. The thing that matters with a servant is not to know that he has blue blood, aristocratic blood, noble blood, or royal blood. The thing that matters with a servant is that he's got a hearing ear. If he can't hear what I want him to do, what point is there in having a servant? So we find from the very beginning that Jesus, as the servant of God, is the one who hears the Lord. And because he hears the Lord, he is able to do the will of God. This is so important. You read in Psalm 40 and verse 7, those, in that wonderful messianic psalm, these words. Then said I... Or let, no, let me read from verse um, 6. Sacrifice and offering thou hast no delight in. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I am come. In the roll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now this little word... Mine ears hast thou opened is very interesting in Hebrew. Because what it really says in a very awkward and strange way is, My ears have you digged, or my ears have you pierced through. You've, you've done something to my ear. And it's almost as if the Messiah is saying, I delight to do thy will, O God, because you've done something to my ear. <laughs> you see, uh, uh, the ear has been opened. You now, I was talking about being a living sacrifice. Dear friend, don't get it wrong, but to hear what I'm saying. <clears throat> you can be a living sacrifice, but if you don't hear the Lord, a lot of your living, being a living sacrifice is going to be ineffective. The Lord says, sacrifice and offering thou hast no delight in. It's exactly opposite to what we think, that the Lord delights in it. He says, sacrifice and offering thou hast no delight in, unless it leads to a pierced ear. Burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then said I, lo, I am come to do thy will. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. You will remember uh, that uh, um, in uh, uh, Deuteronomy, we have the picture of a servant who goes out. Do you remember? Who doesn't want to go out. You know, in the Jubilee year, in the 50th year, every 50th year, all property and possessions returned to their rightful owner and all slaves were free to go out. Now if they had a wife and if they had children, the wife and the children had to remain with the master, but the actual slave was free to go out. 
But if he loved his master, it says in Deuteronomy, if he loved his master, he shall go to his master and say, I will not go out free. And the master shall take the slave or servant to the gatepost and with an awl will pierce through his ear. Now, isn't that interesting? In other words, piercing through his ear, he had a little ring in his ear, rather one of these modern customs that seems to be taking over today, only it's not service. Um, uh, the thing is, the pierced ear for the man, well, with the ring in it, meant he was a slave or servant forever, voluntarily, in the house of his master. So when you saw a slave in the old days and he had no ring in the ear, you knew he was just a slave bought and he was there under protest maybe. But when you saw a slave with a gold ring to his ear, ah, he was quite different. He was there because he wanted to be there. Why didn't the Lord put a ring to the nose? They did it in some parts of the world put a ring through the nose, or better still, put a ring round the neck, or a bangle round the arm, or a ring on the finger, or a ring on one of the toes, or a ring round the ankle, a bangle round the ankle. Why through the ear? Because God was saying, service is connected with hearing. So, if he wants to be a servant forever, then he always says, I've got his ear. I've got his ear. What point is it if you're called a servant of God and God hasn't got your ear? Have you got a pierced ear? It is vital that God get your ear. Long before he gets your foot and long before he gets your hand, he wants your ear. Now we've got this even more interestingly in Leviticus. And it's a point that I suppose in a company well taught like this, um, uh, it has been heard a number of times. But in Leviticus 14 and verse 14 to 17, we read this. This is the leper. And this is the cleansing from leprosy. When the leper has got delivered from his leprosy and he's healed from his leprosy, this is what has to take place. And the priest, verse 14, and the priest shall take of the blood of the trespass offering and the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. Ear, thumb, toe. Will you notice that it's that way round? Not toe, thumb, ear. It is ear, thumb, and toe. It is not thumb, toe, and ear. It is ear, thumb, and toe. Oh, I know I'm treating you like Sunday school kids, but the thing is that if you can only get hold of it, it's so simple. God wants your ear first before he gets your hand and before he gets your foot. The trouble with us is that when we're leaders, we want to be always doing something with our hands. Let's get on with it. Come on, Lord. You know, I don't want to sit there like Mary, mystically listening. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Put something in my hand, something I can do. Our feet have got an itch in them. They want to run. They want to sort of get on with things, get things done, go places with God. God says, it's no good. 
If you think you're going to go places with me and if you think you're going to work my works, the first thing I need is your ear. So when he cleanses you from sin, the first thing that the blood touches is your hearing so that you can hear God. And then you're doing and then you're walking. Even more interestingly, if you go on, and the priest, verse 15, and the priest shall take of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. And the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and shall sprinkle the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And the rest of the oil that is in his hand shall the priest put upon the tip of the right ear, that is to be cleansed, upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot, upon the blood of the trespass offering. Now, isn't this interesting? And will you notice that the Lord makes more of the oil than even of the blood? It's interesting that the blood is not poured into the palm and then sprinkled seven times before the Lord. But when it comes to the oil... He pours it into the palm of his left hand, the priest takes it with his right finger and sprinkles it seven times, meaning totality. And then he takes the rest of the oil and he puts it first on the ear, then on the thumb, and then on the toe, all of the right side. So you see, you not only need to be cleansed, you need an experience of the Holy Spirit. You need not only to know what it is to... For the, not, you need not only to know what the atonement of the Lord Jesus is for you, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus, but you need to know the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And will you notice the Holy Spirit doesn't set our feet dancing, itching to go places first, or our hands itching to do things. The Holy Spirit first gets our ear. If the Holy Spirit hasn't got your ear, you're of no good whatsoever as far as the service of God is concerned. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you're of absolutely no earthly or heavenly use to your Father. He could say, I could bawl at him, and he can't hear. I can shout at him! He can't hear. He's got his hands so filled with the routine life of the church that he can't even hear what I'm saying. He's got his feet so filled with running here and there and doing this and that in the work of God, he can't hear what I'm saying. I must tell you that in the work of God, wherever one goes, this is exactly what one finds. People who began off with such zeal and with such clarity and with such joy and with such longing and desire for God. And now it's a big routine. They've got to run here. They've got to run there. They've got to do this. They've got to do that. They're so busy they can't hear God. They no longer hear the Lord. If they ever heard in the first place. Because somehow or other, their foot... And the hand got priority. 
And God puts the priority on the ear. Now suffer a word that I hope won't be too shocking. Another thing I find wherever I go, especially in uh, the groups and assemblies that are represented in this room, um, is that in our collective leadership, we believe in the plurality of leadership. We don't believe in the hierarchy system. One man, and then under him certain others, and there's also the type of thing where it's all... Uh, uh, well, elders become, uh, as it were, rubber stamps. We believe in the plurality of elders. Now, there is an equal. There is a first amongst equals. That is obvious. And it's a spiritual matter. We make much of the equality of leadership. But amongst leaders, there will always be those who have more experience, who have a clearer way with God, and we shall, we shall, they're not unfailingly right. That's why we need always to, to, to emphasize the equality of leadership. But uh, generally speaking, we give them respect. Do you know the great weakness of collective leadership? And I have had now, I suppose, 30 years uh, uh, of experience in watching it, observing it, and being part of it. The great weakness of collective leadership is it's opportunist. Opportunist. It never has foresight. In other words, very rarely do you find collective leadership planning ahead. It always takes things as they come and uses it. For instance, I find and again, again and again that I'm asked by someone when I go different places, there's a, a sim, they say, how come you can go so many days to so-and-so and you've only got an hour for us? And I say, because they asked me two years ago. That's why. Oh, but you belong to us. I certainly do belong to you. But if you don't take... A thing, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm using myself as an illustration. Forgive me. Uh, but uh, it's so with them. You see, we wait until we hear a brother is moving through, and then we say, oh, do you think you could come and give us uh, uh, a day or an hour or, or take this time or that time? And we come and say, how come he's going up so-and-so and doing this and doing that? You see, we, we, we are so busy with the routine life of the church and the responsibilities and the burdens that we could never hear the Lord for anything ahead. It is a tremendous thing when brethren get a burden uh, for the future. In other words, I don't mean the far, far future, but I mean they get a burden for something ahead. They feel it would be good if we had a sister's weekend, or it would be good if we had a young people's time, or it'd be good if we did this or that. In other words, they plan ahead for the needs of the flock. So you see, brothers and sisters, the problem with collective leadership is that normally speaking, you get three or four brothers all and inwardly in their hearts a little afraid of taking the initiative lest the other brothers should think oh ho <laughs> so and so's making a bid <laughs> who does he think he is <laughs> so we're always a little afraid you see so we've got and of course we, we've all got to be broken and humble and modest 
which means we all sit in the back seat and nobody does anything. So you see, it is tremendous importance for brethren to get to know each other, to get to understand each other, and to be able to understand their temperament of each one, and to be able to trust the Lord in one another. So that if a brother has a burden and says, I think it would be so good if we were to do so, so it could be taken up in prayer, is the Lord saying something? This, I believe, is a of tremendous importance, this hearing ear. So, dear friends, we have blood upon the right ear, upon the thumb of the right hand, and on the toe, the great toe of the right foot. We have oil upon the right ear, oil upon the thumb of the right hand, and oil upon the great toe of the right foot. In other words, God has cleansed your hearing that you may not be fashioned according to this world, but be re-transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect <coughs> will of God. I wish some of you brothers, if I may just say this to you directly, I wish some of you brothers who have a problem about hearing the Lord would take a step of faith this morning and say, I hear the Lord. I hear the Lord and I am going to hear the Lord. You know, there was a brother I remember some years ago who was as deaf as a doorpost. I mean, you could have, uh, unless he saw you, he never knew whether you were coming up behind him. You could have hit him with a hammer from the back and he wouldn't have known. I mean, he was as deaf as a very young. He had three beautiful children and a lovely wife. And I remember once we talked and he told me about his deafness. And he said, do you know how I became deaf, according to the specialists? No, I said. Well, he said, I was in a family of 17 children. And he said, they were so noisy. At a very early age, I just shut them all out. And within a matter of years, he'd become deaf. You know, I feel that many servants of the Lord are like that. You see, they say all the time, I can't hear, I can't hear. I'm not one of these special people like Stephen Kong or, or, or uh, Watchman Nee or one of these others, these sort of, well, we wouldn't call them mystics, but you know what I mean, not in our circles, but elite. I mean, they're, they're the pioneers. They're the, they're the great ones, you see. I mean, they hear the Lord. But I, I'm a plebeian. <laughs> you know, one of the great mass. I'm just one of those people, I don't hear the Lord like that. I mean, I'd drop dead if the Lord talked to me. <laughs> he doesn't do it. I'm just not the kind. And you know what happens? You become deaf. The God-given capacity to hear the Lord is ignored and left in disuse so that in the end it ceases to function. 
take a step of faith this morning and say, I hear the Lord. God has given me this thing. Don't just ask him for it. Just say, I have it by the grace of God. It's my birthright. I'm standing into it. I'm going to hear the Lord. Expect to hear the Lord. What a strange father it would be who never talked to his child. And yet some Christians believe they can go through the whole of life and he never says a word to them. Because somehow or other they feel, well, they're too unworthy. God in heaven doesn't sort of think of speaking to every child of his. But God in heaven does. <coughs> my sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. So, uh, dear folks, this whole matter is of tremendous importance. May I finally close with the most dramatic lesson, I think, in the whole Bible of this matter of, uh, of hearing the Lord. It is, of course, the life of Elijah. Now, Elijah, I think I hardly need to say it again here in this place, Elijah um, sums up service. There are two men, according to the Bible and according to Jewish tradition, who sum up the whole service of God under the Old Covenant. One is Moses and the other is Elijah. And this is not just legend or myth or some Jewish fable. For when the Lord Jesus was transfigured in glory, it was Moses representing all the patriarchs and lawmakers and Elijah representing all the prophets and communicators of the mind of God. These two men representing the whole service of God in, under the Old Covenant who communed with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, you see, um, uh, Elijah is a supreme example of service. And when we look at him, what a, what a marvelous picture he is. There is a little phrase that I find so wonderful in the life of Elijah. You will find it, it comes a number of times, but you'll find it, one example, in 1 Kings 17 and... Um, and uh, verse 1 and 2, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the sojourners of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, the little phrase that I love so much is the Lord, the God of Israel, the, the, the Lord before whom I stand. Even when he was running, he could say, before whom I stand. Even when he was doing great work, it was the Lord before whom I stand. In other words, his whole attitude was one of service. I am in the presence of the Master. I stand in the presence of the Master. He has only to say one word and I'll do it. He didn't say, now listen, Ahab, I stood before the Lord this morning in my quiet time. 
It was a consistent, ongoing, continuous thing as far as he was aware of the Lord all the time. Now, I don't mean that he was all, every minute, conscious of the Lord, but he knew he was standing in the presence of the Lord. If the Lord wanted to say something, he could say it, and Elijah would hear whatever he was doing. He could have been up on the mountain, he could have been in the valley. And if you know anything about the kind of country that Elijah loved, you get something of the kind of man he was. He was a most remarkable man. He, he chose for places to live the most dramatic and sensational history in the whole of Israel. Carmel, Cherith, Sinai. Wherever you go, it is so dramatic. It, it says something about the man. He was a rugged, manly man. Think of this man who outran Ahab's royal chariot 20 miles after a tremendous confrontation with all the people which would have exhausted most servants of the Lord, certainly myself. I would have had to have gone to my bedroom and lay down for a few hours. But not Elijah. He ran like the wind. And he wasn't so young either. And he got to the royal palace before Ahab. When old Ahab came in with all the, the horses frothing at the mouth, sweating like I don't know what, they rolled into that. There was Elijah. <laughs> Poor Ahab. No wonder he felt he was haunted by Elijah. <laughs> I left you back there on Carmel. How come you got here? I ran. <laughs> The Lord didn't even transport him and drop him, you know, like he did Philip on one occasion. He ran, he outran the world. That man was a man. But that man heard the Lord. So much for this idea that the more manly you are, the less you really hear the Lord. This man heard the Lord. Listen to the kind of thing. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the book Cherith, that is before the Jordan. Verse 8. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to sustain thee. Chapter 18. And, it, and verse 1. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab. This was a man who heard the Lord. No wonder he said, The Lord before whom I stand. He could hear the Lord. The Lord would say, Get down there. Go there. Show yourself to Ahab. Elijah wasn't continually saying, I think I'll give Ahab another shock this morning. <laughs> the bad time he had a few spiritual fireworks just to let him know that the God of Israel lives. I'll go in and I'll say to him this, this, and this, and this. No, not at all. He had to do what God told him. In the New Testament, there is a very interesting little phrase um, in James. And Elijah, who was a man of like passion such as we, he prayed in prayer that it might not rain for three years. What did it, does it mean in the Greek? He prayed, it says in some places, with prayer, because it's so hard to understand that he prayed with prayer. But even if we take the English, he prayed with prayer. I mean, how can he pray with anything else? <laughs> it's rather silly, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to pray, you have to pray with prayer. <laughs> so, why does God put in a useless little word? No, it doesn't mean that. It means this, it literally, it just, he prayed in prayer. In other words, he was praying in the prayer of the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. It was the will of God. 
He didn't pray his own prayers. He couldn't just say, no more rain. That will show them. It's godless lot. He could only say the heavens will not rain and there'll be no dew. Which, by the way, is very important because we don't have rain for eight months of every year, but the dew keeps everything alive. He said no rain and dew. That was disastrous. But he could only say that because it was the will of God. In the same way that when he said, now let the rain come, it was the will of God that the three years be finished. In other words, here was a man who stood before the Lord. He was hearing the Lord. Now, I think most of you know the marvelous story, <clears throat> the contest upon Mount Carmel. A great contest, confrontation with those powers of evil and darkness. And you know how the fire of God fell out of heaven and, and consumed the burnt offering. You remember how, first of all, when the challenge came and uh, Elijah said to them all, all right, then you build an altar and I'll build an altar and, and you call upon your gods and I will call upon the God of Israel. And you remember when they built their altar? They danced up and down from morning till from sunrise to sunset. They cut themselves, they screamed, they shouted, they got into an ecstatic frenzy. They tried in every way possible to get the god of the goddess of fertility and the gods in the heavens to somehow come down and burn up the sacrifice. But nothing happened. And you remember Elijah was very irreverent. He said some very naughty things. <laughs> in your King James Version, it's so correct, but in the Hebrew, it's really quite direct. Mm. I mean, he sort of said, maybe he's gone on a tour. <laughs> <laughs> or he said, maybe he's deaf. And um, again, I'm afraid he said, or maybe he's sitting on the toilet. That's what it says in Hebrew. Yours says maybe he's turned aside. <laughs> what kind of man was Elijah? My word. Makes you realize. No wonder the prophets of Baal were furious with this man. How could they bring their gods into disrespect like that? And Jezebel, she was frothing at the mouth. She had to put new lipstick on. <laughs> so upset. I remember years ago when I was in Egypt and we went to one of these model leadership courses we had the most liberal of all theologians and he told us of course he said we all know how the fire fell so of course I was terribly interested in not mine and he said you see we know that uh, on Mount Carmel there are benzene wells and that water that uh, Elijah poured into the ditch of course was benzene it wasn't water. He said, you've never seen fire lick up water, have you? But I mean, benzene, it licks it up. <laughs> in other words, Elijah was a real old fraud. But he never told us where the fire came from. So when it came to question time, I asked him, well, where did the fire come from? And he looked at me quite so I said, fire. Fire. <laughs> I said, well, the fire that licked up the benzene. <laughs> oh, he said, why? Why, I, I don't. I never thought about it. So I said, maybe it was Elijah's cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Still, I shouldn't have told you that. That's an 
<laughs> no, no, no. Elijah had a contest with a confrontation with the powers of darkness. It was a real confrontation with the powers of darkness. And when the fire fell, it fell from heaven. And it fell at the exact time of the evening sacrifice in the temple at Jerusalem. And at that moment, it consumed everything. And all the people said, the Lord, the God of Israel, he is God. And Elijah said, take all those prophets and slay every one of them. Don't let one of them escape. And they slew about 850 of these pioneers of evil in society. And somehow or other, some messenger fled down the motorway uh, to the royal palace some 20 miles away and said to Jezebel, do you know what's happened? All your favorite priests are all dead. So when Elijah arrives at the palace in front of Ahab, Jezebel sends him a little message. Do you know she doesn't even bother to go out and see him? She sends him a message. Now this Jezebel wasn't a tank of a woman. You know, sometimes you get the idea that these ferocious women are like Russian athletes, you know, sort of muscles, you know. And you think, well, any man would quake before one of them. I mean, so huge, so tank-like. Well, we all know ladies like that. <laughs> but not Jezebel. Jezebel was the flimsiest, most feminine. She floated on a cloud of perfume. <laughs> with painted nails and beautifully manicured hands and beautiful face. She was the tiniest, most feminine, most coquettish woman in society. You wouldn't have thought Elijah would have been afraid. But she just sent a message by a servant and said, God help me, if I don't do to you, what you've done by this time tomorrow, what you've done to those prophets of mine. And Elijah, this great man of God, this man who'd been so used by God, this man who'd seen so many signs and wonders, whose whole ministry was earthquake, wind and fire, this man, he ran for his life faster than even when he got before the royal chariot. Out into the desert, right down to the south. He ran as far as he possibly could until beyond Bethlehem. He flung himself under a juniper tree, so exhausted that God said, Oh my word, get down there quickly and cook supper for you <laughs> to some of the angels. And the angels shook him and said, Elijah, Elijah, we've cooked your breakfast. And he ate it. He never wasn't the least bit surprised about the angels. It's amazing, isn't it? He cooked his breakfast. He was fighting to death with Jezebel. God said to the angel, don't say a single negative thing. Don't say anything about his fleeing from Jezebel. He's not in a state. He can't take it. He's so panic-stricken, we've got to help him go in the wrong direction. So then they said, have a sleep, Elijah. And he said, I wish I could die. It's no good. 
and he fell asleep. Now, of course, it was the day. It wasn't night, because you don't travel in our part of the world during the day, uh, in the old days, but in the night. And he slept. And then the angels went and woke him up again and said, Elijah, another meal. Not a word of rebuke. The Lord helped him go in the wrong direction. It was as if the Lord said to the angels, nothing negative, I'll catch him the other end. Just like the Lord got Peter when he shouldn't have been fishing in Galilee. The Lord said, let him go. I'll get him. Or like the two going to Emmaus. They had no business to be going in the wrong direction, but the Lord got them. Sometimes you know we can go in the wrong direction and, and a, a true servant of the Lord will help someone go in the wrong direction because God will get them the other end. But that may not be, mis might be misunderstood by some of you. Anyway, Elijah was going in the wrong direction and he went and went and went and went 40 days and 40 nights until finally he came to Mount Horeb and there he recovered and got a little bit back of his calm. And then the Lord said to him, Elijah, yes, Lord, who told you to come here? You remember? What doest thou here, it says in the King James. Who told you? Did you hear me say, get thee to Horeb? And Elijah, with the shrewdness that belongs to our race, never answered the question. He said, oh Lord! He said, do you know what's happening in the land? <laughs> Everyone is dying left, right and said that they've killed all your servants and cast down your altars and I, even I only, am left. And the Lord said, all right, Elijah, stand where you are. And he stood. And then the, there was a tremendous wind. Now the wind in Sinai can actually split rocks. It's such force. And it came with such power that it hit the mountains and the rocks exploded and broke and rumbled down. And Elijah loved every minute. Oh, Lord, he said, this is terrific. <laughs> and the Lord said, I wasn't in the wind. I caused it, but I wasn't in it. And then there came an earthquake. And the whole place shook and heaved up and down. Of course, probably most of you know that our side of the River Jordan is going up an inch a year and the other side is going down an inch and we are parting company by an inch every year, which means that if we only wait long enough, our problems in the Middle East will be solved <laughs> by natural causes. But anyway, you can imagine mountains going up, valleys going down, great crevices opening, and Elijah loved it. Oh, Lord, he said, this is terrific. And the Lord said, I caused it, but I'm not in it. And then a fire roared up the mountain. You would have thought that Elijah would have fled into a cave, covered his head and said, oh, Lord, have you ever seen a forest fire? It roars like an express train with such power, with such velocity. But Elijah stood there erected, Lord, this is tremendous. What a display of divine fireworks, Lord. It's terrific. And the Lord said, I caused it, Elijah, but I'm not in it. 
And then there was a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard in Hebrew, it is a sound of gentle stillness. When Elijah heard the voice of God, he crumbled. He wrapped his mantle round his head, fell on his face before God. And the Lord said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Have you got the message? You see, the whole of that man's ministry was wind, gale, force, power, tremendous earthquake ministry, shaking whole nations, turning society upside down by the word and works of God. Fire, the Holy Spirit in person. But God was saying to Elijah, you may have a ministry of wind, of earthquake, and fire, but if you do not hear my voice, you are of no use to me. Far more important than a mighty ministry like that is a voice that can be heard in your spirit. Then, Elijah, you wouldn't have fled from Jezebel. If you had only heard me, I would have told you to stand there. And you know, Jezebel's end, she was thrown out of the window by rebels, and the dogs ate her. Could have happened a few years earlier. Elijah could have stood there, and God would have said, I'll tell you what to tell that Jezebel. Don't you worry. She's challenging me, not you. But the man was so panic-stricken, he couldn't hear the Lord. And he did the natural, spontaneous thing. He ran for his life and has presented us with one of the greatest lessons in the whole Bible about service. Having served God in the most tremendous way, we can just not hear him. So, dear friends, this matter of hearing the word of the Lord, it's all important. You know, the Lord said to Elijah with great humor uh, a little later, not very much later either, he said, you know, Elijah, go and anoint Jehu. Your Jezebel will be dead. It was Jehu who killed her. Go and anoint Jehu to be king. Go and anoint Eli Elisha to take your place. And there was another one, Hazael, I think, in another sphere. And Elijah just before you go, there's just one thing. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. What God was really saying was this. You know you said you're the only one left. There are 7,000 who hear me. That was the secret. It was the hearing. Not even the seeing of the great works and the mighty things that could devastate you and somehow influence you. But in the end, as far as God was concerned, it was the people who heard him. They were the ones who could be kept pure. They were the ones who became the overcoming remnant. They were the ones who were the advanced party in the fulfillment of God's purpose. They heard the Lord and did his will.
Dear brothers and sisters, there could be no matter more important than this matter of hearing the Lord, and particularly in the days into which we are now moving. May God give us a hearing ear. May we be those who can hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. If there's any problem on this matter, I know we all hear people that say, the Lord told me to do this, the Lord told me to do that, and the Lord has never told them any such thing. We have to remember that all that we hear needs to be submitted in fellowship. We learn to trust one another, the Lord in one another, so that we're preserved from delusion, we're preserved from deception, and we're enabled together to do the will of God. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Thank you.